Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. We'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself and not convert you. So much has been happening and going on this week. It's just been really interesting. But, again, my name is Kim, Kimberly Veal, and I am one of the hosts of Black Free Thinkers. So I wanted to make sure I introduced myself properly today. For those who are longtime listeners, they pretty much should know who I am by voice. And, you know, I appreciate you guys. You know, I just want to make sure that you all understand that I do appreciate my listeners. You know, even the people that don't like me who listen to the show, here's a big old hug. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I'm just trying to make a mark out here, trying to encourage people to read and to research and to understand this history that we are living, you know, because it's important. And what's really important is to understand the past history, which can explain the current history, which kind of gives you some insights of future history. Because one of the things that I say on a consistent basis on this show is that history repeats itself. It's just different players, different names, but the game is still the same. Okay? And, you know, it's important for you guys to understand that. And, you know, one of the critiques that I've received is, why don't you cite sources more? Look, I give you sources. I give you names of books. I do all of that. You know, you have to take some responsibility and do some research for yourself. And what's interesting is the people who are like, why don't you cite more sources? They're usually people who claim to have, you know, majored in this and that in school. So you already know the sources. You can post it up. You know, but, I mean, you know, I steer people in the right direction. I post a lot of things on my wall. This is why I tell people to pay attention to my wall. And I don't post as much as I used to post. But I still post some pretty decent stuff here and there. And usually it's relevant to something that I've spoken about in the past or that I'm currently speaking about or an upcoming show. And so, let's see here. This is part three, part three of our three-part series. And today's show is White Identity Politics, and we'll be talking about anti-blackness. And so we'll get to that shortly. But, you know, I wanted to tell you about the next few shows. Now, the next show I was going to be the first part of the two-part series, but the reason why I'm not going to do that is because on Sunday, I think that's the 25th, pulling up a calendar now, but, um, whoops, oh, good group, yeah, it's Sunday the 25th, I won't be here, so I don't want to start a two-part series and take that day, that Sunday off, so we're just going to do the Liberty Party next week, and that's only a one-part show, so the Liberty Party will be next week, the week after that, the 25th, I won't be here. Now, I anticipate being here the Sunday after that, but it really depends on how I feel. But I think, I think I'll think i be fine by then. So 
We'll be doing that. And then after that becomes the two-part series, Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal. Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal. And we'll be talking about the New Deal um, in this country when it was passed. We'll talk a little bit about Southern strategy then and now. We'll talk about how the party switched, how the Democrats slash Dixiecrats, you know, their role in in the racism in that, you know, particular um, party. And so we'll be talking about that. And then after that, it'll be a two-part series. We'll be talking about black humanists, free thinkers, atheists, you know, and their roles in, you know, social justice and social movements in this country. But, you know, there's a little twist to it. We're going to talk about how many of them um, were associated with socialism and communism. And so it's important for you to understand that. And, you know, I gave a few books out um, titles last week. But, yeah, we're going to talk about that. And then after that, we'll talk about capitalism. And, you know, I'm saying it's going to be a three-part show. But something tells me we're going to have to, we're going to need more time than that. But um, let me see here. Let me give you all some books. As far as the Liberty Party is concerned, there is a book called The Liberty Party, 1840 through 1848, Anti-Slavery, Third Party Politics in the United States. The author is Reinhold O. Johnson. Okay. And for, you can also go and look up Hammer and Ho, Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression. So I'm going to talk about a little bit from that book on the Liberty Party, but I'm going to cover it a little bit more in depth when we talk about black humanists, free thinkers, and, you know, their roles in social justice movements or different movements in this country. Um, including socialism and communism. So it's going to be important that you all understand that and read that. It's actually a really good book. And for the capitalist or capitalism show, we're going to talk about the half that has never been told. And I'm also going to incorporate some parts from the American Slave Coast, A History of the Slave Breeding Industry. And that was written by Ned Sublette and Constance Sublette. So you all can go and look it up and get some information, you know, regarding this book. And for the half that has not been told, I'm looking for that so I can give you the name of the author. You know, it's like I order so many books, you know, excuse me. So it's just important. Another book you all may want to pick up and read, The History of White People by Nell Painter. We talked a little bit about that book, and it's relevant to today's talk too. So, you know, something that you may be interested in reading. What in an oh, so it says orders placed in the last six months. All right, so we're going to say all of 2015. I was wondering what happened to the rest of my digital books here. Well, anyway, you all can go and look that information up. It's available to you. And another book that's relevant, or two books relevant to today's show, Working Towards Whiteness, How America's Immigrants Immigrants Became White, The Strange Journey from Ellis Island to the Suburbs. And that is written by David Rodiger. 
and I'll spell his last name, R-O-E-D-I-G-E-R, David Rodiger. That's how I pronounce it. It may be pronounced Rodiger. I don't know. So in the number one book for today's show is The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. Again, Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. And that's by Khalil Muhammad. And, guys, let me tell you, this is a good book. I mean, I got enough information just from the introduction to do a show, you know, not even tearing into the meat of the book. And, you know, it's like saying next week is the Liberty Party, but you know what? We may be adding a part four because it's just so much information. I enjoyed this book so much that I have, you know, the physical copy as well as an electronic copy. This is a fantastic book, okay? I'm telling you guys, I mean, you know, many of us are not religious, but, you know, reading this book, there are going to be some times you want to stand up and throw your hands in the air because it confirms a lot of the things that you believe and that you know, but, you know, now you have the historical context and the information makes sense, you know, and it's really interesting because, like I said, fantastic book. We're going to get into that because there's so many goodies in there that, you know, I definitely want to share with you guys. And, you know, I'll recap the past couple of shows in a few minutes, but, you know, I want to talk about some things that have been going on. And, you know, a couple of articles that I posted on my wall I posted an article not only on my Facebook wall. When I say my wall, you know, I sent it out to Tumblr, Twitter, Google+. Plus. You can find all of this on all of my social um, media um, accounts. So, you know, go over there and take a look. But um, I posted an article about how early black schools refuted white supremacy. You know, and it's important that you guys, you know, know things like that. So I posted that for you, and I hope you enjoyed the article. I also posted an article about the black tax and how, you know, it's a paradox being a person of color or a black person and having affluence, which is basically having money. And so in that particular article, it was talking about a woman who was out shopping at a department store, and this white woman came up to her asking for assistance, and she ignored the white woman, and then the white woman addressed her again, but with one of those tones. You remember those mama tones? You know, when you did something that mama wants your attention now? Yeah, for most of us, that's when they say your full name, right? Or, or they get that little edge in the voice. And so that's what the woman did to her. It was like, listen, gal, I'm talking to you. You know, and, and those are my words. And and it's interesting because I've been in that situation. And it's just, it's amazing, absolutely amazing how some people will address you, especially when they feel that they are superior to you. So anyway, getting back to the, to the um, article, you know, she made a lot of great points in how, and she talks about some of the guilt because, you know, quite a few people of color that have, um, let's just say, grown in affluence have um, 
you know, just made it, if you will. That's the term that a lot of people use. You know, there is some guilt behind some of that. And 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 there are varying degrees of guilt. And, you know, I've kind of I've been down there. I'm still on that damn road. I'm trying to figure out how to get the hell off of it. And, you know, you do things and you give things to people that you know you shouldn't, but you just feel bad. And in some cases, you know, you do it because it's the right thing to do. You know, we're supposed to help one another. So anyway... I don't know if there's a book on that. I need to search. If anyone knows of a book talking about, you know, the paradox of class in regards to black people, please let me know. Now, there is a book called The Paradox of Class, and it's talking about whiteness in this, you know, in this country. And that's actually a good book. We talked about it a little bit more. And, you know, I would actually like to kind of tear into that a lot more. But the paradox of class, and it's talking about white people, and in particular, poor white people, because the general stereotype is that all white people are rich, and we all know that not to be the case. And so what's interesting with that, you know, that book as well as, you know, the history that we are currently living is you'll see a lot of the rhetoric out there in regards to welfare and, you know, entitlement programs. And the stereotype has been black women. And black women get the brunt of abuse from, you know, white people, other people of color, black men in particular, and I'm going to tear into that in a few minutes. But um, if you go and you look at the studies and the statistics, the majority of people that are receiving, you know, um, public assistance or food stamps are white people. And ironically, they're white people that live in red states that vote against their own interests. But, you know, Ronald Reagan made it infamous, if you will, to blame black women or the welfare queen, if you will. And you go back and you look into all of that history, you'll understand why. And even to this day, that, you know, stereotype is still pervasive. And we've been battling against it, but sometimes it's hard. And, I mean, you all heard the troll that called my show that was blaming everything on black women. And, you know, I was going along with it for a while. And it was like, when I say going along with it, I'm not talking about allowing him to just blame everything on black women. You know, I was trying to put things in context. But it just got to the point where I said, why do you hate women? Why do you hate black women? And unfortunately, you have a lot of people out here that do. And if they, you know, it's just interesting. You have a lot of people out here that objectify black women. You know, they still see us as their property. And they still try to limit what we do and what we don't do and, you know, in, in our bodies. And so, you know, what's interesting about all of that is, um, you know, they had the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March this week, um, this past weekend. And there were quite a few people that went, and that's all lovely and wonderful. But, you know, like I said, I posted an article, and it said, Dear Black Men, you're not pro-black if you're not pro-black woman. And so, you know, it's interesting about that article 
because it has so much in it, so much knowledge in it, but it's true. How can you be pro-black if you're not pro-black woman, if you're not pro-black LGBTQIA, I'm just going to say the whole rainbow. You know, um, I'm sorry, you guys, but LGBTQIA, black people, they're black. Okay? Black women, well, they're black. You know, black atheists, black free thinkers, black humanists, they're black too. And so, you know, if the umbrella is not shielding all of us from the damn acid rain that's being poured on us, then you're not pro-black. You know, I'm sorry. You know, and I, and what I find interesting is you have people out here that try to define us. And one thing that I will say, never let other people define you because, you know, you'll drive yourself nuts because you'll never be able to live up to what they define you if it's something, you know, positive in the first place. You have people out here that will keep negative or negativity upon you because it fits their particular narrative. So anyway, getting back to the Million Man March um, anniversary this weekend, you know, you know, Louis, you know, Minister Farrakhan, you know, I want to definitely show some respect there because back when, way back when, when I was searching for answers and, you know, Christianity wasn't giving me the answers that I needed, you know, I did study with um, NOI for a minute and they couldn't answer the questions either. You know, my family, they live down in central Illinois, and they sent someone from Chicago down to talk to me because my questions weren't being answered, and it was obvious that I was, you know, frustrated um, about the situation. And so, you know, life goes on, you move on, but y'all can call me Kim X. I got my one X. So anyway, so I'm a little familiar with the NOI. and. I'm not going to talk a lot about this or about this particular group because I live in Chicago and I don't need anybody knocking on my door with a case of perch, a bean pie, and a newspaper. But, um, yeah, you know, Minister Farrakhan, you know, he sent word to Jay-Z via an interview that Jay-Z needs to tell Beyonce to cover up. And, you know, when you, when you look at some of the writings and some of the culture behind NOI, it's, it's, it's patriarchy. You know, I mean, the deluxe, you know, you can add the bacon to that. Oops, sorry about that. But anyway, it's, it's just interesting. But, yeah, yeah, it's important that you guys understand it. And so, you know, they had the 20th anniversary, and I have not had a chance to – look up or read any postmortems about, you know, the march and the talks. Um, I'll do that probably this week sometime. But, you know, I, I'm going to hope that there was some type of call to action. And not only with this movement, but the other movements that are happening around, you know, not only in America, but globally because black lives matter. That's, you know, the entire world. You know, I know I've posted 
some information about Afro-Ecuadorians and how their history is now being um, factored into the history of Ecuador. I know I've posted information about, you know, blacks in France, blacks in Germany, you know, blacks in um, London and, you know, all around the world. You know, the man, the Dutch, they were marching for us, and they're still marching. And see, and that's the, that's the part that, you know, that's, disheartens me is that the media is not covering, you know, these Black Lives Matter marches and protests and, you know, not just, you know, marching and holding a sign. There are other things that are happening. And the media is, you know, basically blacking that out on purpose, which is why I tell people to read uh, media from other countries because it's not biased or not as biased as the American media. But it's just interesting. Um, Donna Farrakhan, um, Minister Farrakhan's daughter, basically she was talking about, you know, black men being emasculated and who was responsible for that emasculation. And so I posted that on my wall as well. And, you know, everything, again, what's interesting is everybody likes to heap all of this bullshit on black women. And it's not all of our fault. You know, in in most of these cases, it's not our fault at all. Because, you know, someone can only make you feel some kind of way if you give them permission to do it. You understand? And so, you know, again, I want you guys to go and read up on some of this. And, you know, a lot of what the minister was talking about, you know, he said here, the woman is everything in the way of building civilization. She is the mother of civilization. And then it says he went on to say that today women are stripped of their clothes and men cannot think straight because of the beauty, because the beauty of women, such as Beyonce, mesmerizes them. And so what I find problematic about that is, yet again, men are saying that they can't control themselves. So it's incumbent upon us to control them and to not make them as, you know, curious or, as in this case, to stop, you know, allowing them to become mesmerized by the beauty of a black woman and that, you know, a woman disrobing or being, you know, wearing what she wants to wear, you know, um, is a distraction. And, again, they're using black women as the scapegoats. And it's important that we get up and we address that and, you know, not allow this to go on, which is one of the reasons why when you do hear me pushing Black Lives Matter and that particular movement, I'm always talking about how three women of color are, you know, heading or co-founded this movement. And two of those women are queer women of color. So, you know, they understand the importance of the umbrella shielding the entire black community. You know, and if you all had a chance, I'm not sure how many of you all made it out to Cleveland, but you saw some of everybody and everything being represented that weekend. I mean, I I just don't even know what to say because that weekend, you know, it touched me. It really did. 
and it has me even now still rethinking a lot of things. It, that was very positive. It was, you know, we'll just say I was nourished that weekend, and that's something that I'll never forget. And so, you know, next year when you have one, I would encourage you guys to sign up, show up, you know, and it doesn't even have to be next year. You know, I'm sure there's some movements and groups in your community that you can go and participate, you know, with. So I would encourage you to do that. But, you know, I'm going to leave this Minister Farrakhan stuff alone, but one thing that I will say is that they are definitely focused on the youth, the young people. So he was talking about, you know, the hip-hop community, and it's just interesting because even in the secular community, you have different factions focusing on the hip-hop community. And, you know, it's it's interesting. And (laughs) I just need for you guys to pay attention because, you know, one of the things that I don't like to do is, you know, I want people to have their own opinion. And this is the reason why you don't see me really saying very much when I post articles because I want people to look at them, to read them, and to form their own opinion. And like I said, sometimes I post things that I absolutely do not agree with. And once I'm done reading it, I'm like, this was trash. But it gives me an insight as to how other people are thinking. And unfortunately, you have a lot of people who like to point the fingers at others, namely religious people, and say, well, you guys don't read what the other people are saying. And, you know, and they make fun of religious people because they – You know, they are steadfast by their religion. But we have the same thing on this side of the equation, you know, and they will search high and low for articles that confirm what they're saying. So, again, we have confirmation bias on both sides, but it's important to understand what people who disagree with you are saying and what they believe because how can you build a strong argument if you do not know what you're arguing Against, How can you build a counter-argument when you have no idea what they're talking about, what they're believing, or what they're reading? You can't. And so, you know, um, you know, you see the same type of intellectual laziness, <laughs> you know, um, on both sides, and it's a shame. So anyway, I want you guys to go and read the article that's on for Harriet, and it's called Justice in Women's Bodily Autonomy, or else, Minister Farrakhan. And so, you know, again, for those that are in this country, you know there's been a quote-unquote war on women, and basically what they're trying to do is take the autonomy of women away. You know, they're trying to take our agency away. And, yes, we should be able to decide whether or not we want to bring a you know a child into full birth or to abort it. That is our choice. And, you know, yes, we should be able to decide if we want to wear whatever it is that we want to wear. That is our choice. We bought those clothes. And we're going to wear what's comfortable for us. And so, you know, and there are many, many other examples out there, but, again, 
a lot of this, you know, rhetoric that we're hearing is just because they want to control women and they want to control every aspect of our lives. And so Charing Ball wrote an article over in Madame Noir. Go out and take a look at that. And it's talking about, and I posted it yesterday, and it's talking about black men being emasculated and it has video for Donna Farrakhan on there. So I think that it it would be informative. Go out and read it and listen to the video if you have the time. And, you know, I appreciate it. So, yeah, I think I'm going to move on from that. But, you know, again, the point of all of this is if you are not including black women, black LGBTQ members, um, you know, black, you know, secularists or humanists, non-believers or atheists, then you're not pro-black because you have to be pro-everyone. And what's interesting is when I talk to some of the older people, and we have them calling into the show sometimes, and, you know, they like to stress collectivism. And I understand that, and I'm with that, because we'll be able to achieve a lot more if we are a collective, you know. But I also believe in individuality, you know, allow people to be themselves. But, you know, again, what's interesting is, you know, you have these different factions out here that say, yeah, we're pro-black, except for that group and that group and that group. And then they try to justify it with, you know, a lot of their pseudo-history and pseudo-science, you know, to support whatever it is that they're trying to say. And what's ironic about the whole thing, and, you know, Raina and I, we've talked about it on the show, what's ironic about the whole thing is the arguments that they use to, you know, ostracize or shun LGBTQ people or non-believers or women, those are the same arguments white people use to to say that blacks were subhuman, okay? And you still hear those same arguments today. You know, what's interesting is when I hear black women using those same arguments on other black people or black women. Oh, they're being divisive. Oh, they're angry. You know, and it's it's just funny to me. It really is. Because I sit there and I read that, and it's, like, absolutely amazing. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. We're going to talk about how you hear some black elites, you know, black political elites, black elites, or blacks that, you know, want power or want to maintain power, how, They talk about other blacks, you know, those other ones over there, and how they sound just like their racist white counterparts. And, it's you know, the whole thing is really interesting. Um, ah, So um, I posted an article last week, and it was talking about how to make the social justice movement less elite. And I may touch on that today, and then again I may not. it really depends on how much time I have and how I'm feeling and if this conversation goes in that direction. So, again, guys, go out and read these articles. You know, I posted the articles on my wall yesterday, the ones that I put there that was done on purpose so that it would be easier for you to go back and reference some of these things. I mean, when I say I'm sitting on, you know, hundreds of links, yeah, I really think it's about thousands because if you look at my bookmarks on, you know, just my Firefox, 
it's unreal, you know, all of the information that I've collected over the past decade. And, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot. So anyway, I know I wanted to touch on something today that I posted yesterday, and I wanted to talk about this specifically. And then once I'm done with this, then maybe I'll go into the subject of the day. But believe it or not, everything that I'm talking about is interconnected with today's subject, you know, um, anti-blackness. And (laughs) it's interesting because when we try to explain this to people and try to show them the correlations, they get mad at us. You know, and so what's interesting is, you know, this podcast has been on since 2011. And if you go back and you listen to some of the older podcasts, I have not deviated from my original viewpoints because a lot of what I'm seeing now I saw then, but it's even clearer now. And, of course, you know, it does not fit in the agenda of certain people in this community. So, you know, hey, you know, there's a lot more to come, and we are going to have a little fun. But I posted an article yesterday, and the title of that article is, Chris Hedges has a term for Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, secular fundamentalists. And it says, New Atheism's political agenda dovetails with the most retrograde elements of the Christian right. And you know what? He's right, is what I have been saying for the last four or five years that I've been, you know, out a little bit in this community. And it it really does. And, (laughs) you know, people, they, they get mad at me, you know, and... Dude, I'm telling you all what I see, and it's nice to know that I'm not the only one that's saying this bullshit. So, yeah, I'm getting ready to go in on, a, you know, on the secular community, get over it, you know, because, I mean, you should be used to this by now. Okay, so I criticize, you know, religion and the religious community, just like I criticize the secular community, the humanist community, the atheist community, whatever you want to call yourself that community over there. And so, you know, in this particular article, you know, Chris Hedges, he was talking about how he's debated um, people from the religious right, and then he debates these some of these so-called new atheists, and, you know, basically it's the same bullshit on both sides. The extreme is the same, and that's true. You all have heard us talk about Islamophobia on this show. You've heard us call it out. You know, and it's not just Richard Dawkins. It's not just Sam Harris. You know, you have Bill Maher and you have um, Christopher Hitchens and, you know, you have, um, what's his name, Michael Shermer and a number of other ones. The only one that I think can lift kind of clean hands in this is Dennett, Daniel Dennett, and everybody knows who listens to this show that I'm very fond of Mr. Dennett and his work. Um, Yeah, I have a lot of respect for Mr. Dennett. But, again, it's interesting because, you know, he, he did a comparative analysis. It was just brief, but if you all watched the video, 
you you'll walk away with a lot of information. And so, you know, they were talking about, you know, Muslims. And the Christian says right here, the Christian right sanctifies violence against Muslims because they're satanic. And Hitchens and Harris do it because they're barbarians. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we've talked about this on the show. We've talked about it in Twitter chat. And, yeah, I know we're going to bring Twitter chat back. We're going to revive um, POC. It's just it's been a lot happening, and, you know, I have some things that I need to deal with. But, yeah, I anticipate coming back strong, you know, in November, right? And so it's just interesting. But, yeah, you know, um, Mr. Hedges, he was just saying that he debated the Christian right and ran into the same exact mindset with these new atheists. And I've been talking about that. You know, a lot of these people have turned atheism into a religion. Now, I can already see hands going up in the air. I can feel them eyes rolling at me and peering at me through my phone, right? But it's true. And you have people like atheism. You know, theism is religion. A means without, so we're without religion. Okay, you're without that particular religion, but you've created your own. And you can get mad at me all you want. You can call me every name in a book. Been there, done that, heard it, seen it, don't care. Because it's not going to change my stance. And you send me a fucked up email, you catch me on the right day, you're going to get a fucked up response. If any at all. And so, oh, (laughs) and so, yeah, it's interesting. And I'm going to tie this to another article that I put on my wall. And the title of that article was Why I Don't Talk to White People. Okay? And so, you know, I'm going to tie all of this in because I've made it very clear that I really have absolutely no interest in going to the white secular conferences and conventions and doing talks. And that has been my stance, you know, from the very beginning. You know, that has been my stance from day one. And, you know, I I know quite a few people are like, why? And that's part of the work. And no, no, I, 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 I disagree. Now, what I agree on is it is part of the work. But, you know, what I take exception to is you have a lot of people in this community, most notably white people, but you got some blacks too, that can quote Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and, you know, all of these people, but cannot give you a single quote by, you know, a black freethinker, a black atheist, a black humanist. And, you know, what's interesting is you have a lot of white people in this community that are saying, well, you know, they'll ask you some fucked up ass question, like a question about what about black on black crime. And we got to talk about that today and where that came from, you know, and it's important that, you know, we cover that today. But they'll ask you questions like that. And so my response to them, you know, you know, now, you know, for those that are listening, you know, because, again, when they say about black-on-black crime, it's a deflection so that, you know, you'll get, you know, you know, you'll stop questioning and drilling them about whatever it was you were talking about or, you know, just to throw your talk off. 
And what's interesting is, you know, when they do that black-on-black crime thing, I just laugh because the way that I see this is this is not the first time you've heard a person of color talk about, you know, anti-blackness or racism or sexism or social justice or any of those, you know, um, particular topics. And, you know, what I want to ask them when they say, well, I'm just trying to learn, okay, so you're trying to learn. So have you had this conversation with anyone in the past? Yes, I've had this conversation. Okay, so what did they tell you? Well, I don't remember what they told me. Oh, okay, so what books have you read in regards to the black experience in this country? Well, I haven't read any books. Hmm. Okay, so how much research have you done on on the Internet? We post links all the time, all of us. You know, have you read any of those links? Yes, I read it. Okay, what did you learn from it? Well, I don't remember. And I call bullshit. If you can quote Hitchens, Dawkins, Harris, and all of these people, and the only thing you can tell me is that Martin Luther King says, you know, you can quote, you know, his, his speech, I have a dream. Or you can quote Malcolm X by any means necessary. But you know nothing else that they talked about. You can't quote any other black person. I call bullshit. It's not that you don't know. You don't want to know. And I think it's an exercise in futility for me to go to any of these conferences and conventions and talk about shit that you don't care about that you're not going to remember. You're just filling your damn quota and trying to bring in token blacks to make it appear as though this this community is diverse. And see, you know, one of the arguments that, you know, we had on one of the panels for the conference was when we were talking about white atheists wanting to join our groups, you know, now is it inclusivity or is it accommodation? But unfortunately, you have a lot of white people in this community who feel that we should accommodate them, when yet they make no effort to accommodate and and really not even include us because they're not paying attention. And then what's interesting is you get a few clowns in this community that, you know, don't even realize is that they're just the entertainment, period. And so, you know, that's why I say, you know, it's like an, you know, it's an exercise in futility. It's like watching a dog chase his own damn tail. You know, it, you know, so anyway, let me get back to this article. So, yeah, um, you know, he's talking about how many of the new atheists have a binary worldview, which is true. And, you know, we've talked about this, you know, on the show. And he says here is a sanctification of violence against the other. Now, we've talked about the sexism. We've talked about the xenophobia, you know, the racism, the homophobia, transphobia in this community. And you have people out here who get upset with me saying that, you know, I'm trying to hold, you know, the secular community to a standard that they'll never be able to meet, or in some cases, to a standard that, you know, should not even be on the table. But, you know, what I find interesting is you have a lot of people in this community who who call themselves morally superior or intellectually superior or just plain old superior to other folks. 
So if you want to be held to that particular accord, then you must act on that on that particular accord, which means you need to address a lot of the issues that are being swept under the rug in this community. You know, we're supposed to be this beacon of light to believers to convince them that this is the better way? Really? Huh. I don't think so. And so, you know, it's it's just really interesting because they make some of the same excuses you hear them being made just in mainstream America when it comes to these particular issues. And so, you know, again, it's, it's interesting because when he's talking about, you know, how these political agendas, now mind you, the political agenda, I'm repeating that for a reason, you know, and how it dovetails. And when he says dovetails, it, what it means there is tightly fit, conjoined there, you know. And, and I'm telling you guys, and this is what we've been talking about. And in particular, when you have American Atheists, that particular organization that has now turned itself into a lobbying organization, that's politics, people. You know, these new atheists going to CPAC, that's politics, people. These new blacks that are a part of this new atheist, that's politics, people. And you need to understand what's happening over here. And you need to understand why some of us are standing up against it and why we are criticizing it. There are people who are upset because we are criticizing and critiquing the moves of quite a few people in this community. But what's interesting is is that, you know, now when I go through my news feed sometimes, I'll see people talking about things that we talked about three, four, five years ago. You told us we were nuts, and now you're on that same page. How about that? Ain't that some shit? And so I'm just sitting here, and I'm reading, but, you know, right here, and this is a great quote from Chris Hedges. It says, new atheism has been used quite effectively at seducing people in secular society, even on the left, and that is correct. And, you know, again, I'm going to point the finger at American atheists, and it's not just them. So I don't want anyone thinking that I'm just picking on American atheists. Now, it's a lot of these, you know, larger, white, mainstream, secular organizations that are doing this. Pay attention when you watch these videos, you know, on, you know, YouTube or whatever. Pay attention when certain people are talking, they are master salesmen and it turns into a pep rally. And some of the same responses that they get from the secular community is the same response you'll see if you watch a mega pastor when he's talking to his congregation. And I'm just laughing because it's like too many of you don't see this, and I don't understand why you don't see it, but you're being used so anyway, um, you know, again, go and read this, and you'll understand. Listen to the videos. You know, it was a great interview, and, you know, I just want you guys to pay attention. 
you know, you have the Christian right saying that Muslims are satanic. You have secularists saying that they're barbarians. And, you know, my thing is, is that especially with that protest this year that was held in Texas, how they surrounded that mosque, and, you know, that that was inexcusable. Had we done that to a white church, Southern Baptist white church, and it was people of color out there doing that, we would be mowed down in the streets. And it's wrong. And that's not how you treat people. And if we're supposed to be this so-called beacon of light, we should know better. We should do better. You know, but I mean, we're all fallible. People make mistakes. People have to learn. And I understand that. And I'm all about, you know, learning from one's mistakes. But in some cases, you just have to use your common sense. Use your common sense. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, I kind of stay away from a lot of these things because you're not going to use me. Because in addition to you having, you know, filled your quota with your black or, you know, person of color token there, um, in many cases, you know, they want you to spend your money to fly to their shit. They'll let you in for free. They may or may not give you a room. They may or may not give you $50 for gas if you drove. So they want you to spend your money to come see them and talk to them about issues they don't care about. Not going to be me. Can't do it. And so, you know, you've heard me going in on them, how they're bandwagoning in some circles here on the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, movement. And what's interesting is when... I first started posting information in the past couple of years, and in particular with Ferguson and then with Baltimore. There was this eerie silence from white people in this community. And now that, you know, you have one or two trying to give the head nod to, yes, black lives matter, not because they care, it's because they're trying to tether themselves to a movement that has the attention of, you know, people around the globe. And so, you know, I went into it a little bit, but, you know, things aren't the way they always seem. You need to pay attention and look behind the smoking mirrors. And one day I'll tear into that really heavy, but not today. So anyway... Moving on, moving on, moving on. Identity politics, anti-blackness. And so there is so much that I want you guys to understand and to read about. And so from the past couple of shows, you know, I talked about how, you know, racism is an industry, how how capitalism thrives off of racism, you know, anti-blackness and how it continues to thrive. And we're going to talk about it really in depth with the capitalism show. I'm going to go into it a little bit today. But, yeah, you know, fear is an industry. 
you know, anti-blackness is an industry. You know, a lot of people, they look at us and they try to understand when we say capitalism, you know, is tethered to racism, and it really is. And, you know, I said a while ago that we need to have this talk, and part of this talk is going to be held today and talk about how people of color, namely black people, because, you know, I only know how to be black <laughs> I've been black all my life, but you know that in, you know it also includes you know Asians, Latinos, Indigenous, etc. And how we contribute to capitalism, and how we ourselves, to a certain degree, perpetuate white supremacy. Albeit, a lot of people don't realize that you know they are helping to fuel that. And, you know, again, we're going to talk about the black elite, the black political elite. We talked about Jesse and Al and all of those people who have done nothing but fatten their pockets and their stomachs. And they've turned our issues into, you know, a business venture. And it's unfortunate because they are enriching themselves and their families, you know, from the devastation in our communities. And so, I mean, some days when I look and I think about these things and I read about it, you know, I get really sad and upset. And some days I wonder, you know, is it worth it? But then, you know, I'll talk to one of my nieces and nephews and, you know, I'll hear their kids running around in the background or I'll see it on, you know, Facebook or whatever. And then I say, yeah, you know, it's worth it. While I don't have any children of my own, you know, I've adopted several other people's children, you know, and, um, you know, because I, you know, I'm Auntie Kim. I'm the one that will let you eat chocolate cake and pizza for breakfast and then drop you back off to your mama's house so she can deal with that energy. So, you know, it's interesting, but, yeah, you know, there are a lot of things that we need to address. Now, one of the things that I've talked about um, extensively, you know, in the past couple of shows and, you know, other shows, I talk about ethnic whites. And last week, I'm pretty sure a couple of you all were a little surprised to find out that there is a hierarchy in whiteness, and and that's true. You know, with the top of the bill being, you know, WASP, okay, and WASP is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And so, you know, the interesting thing about that is with WASP or white people of that particular origin, they're they're generally... German people and and English people, you know, and it's usually English people that are of German descent. And, you know, this particular, you know, trope or narrative came out of the the fall of Rome. Okay, so you need to go back and you need to read about, you know, what happened when Rome fell, if you will, and what happened to the people and how they created ethnic groups. And, you know, some of them call them old immigrants, you know, but it's it's just interesting. But, yeah, if you go back and you look at the history, you know, in America from the late 17th century and the early 18th centuries, you'll see 
what, you know, they're talking about when they say old immigrants, you know, and, you know, um, these white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, they generally came from Northern Europe, um, particularly Britain and Ireland, Germany and Scandinavia, you know, because, yeah, the Nordics, you know, they definitely considered them as white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And, you know, it's it's interesting um, how they came to this country you know, looking for the American dream. And I know I posted last week about um, the myth of American exceptionalism. And you need to go back, go back and you need to read about that. Ah, and I forgot to mention one thing about that Chris Hedges interview. You know, he was talking about how people in this community, the new atheists, how they overlook imperialism. And how, you know, not only do they overlook imperialism, you know, it's like imperialism and capitalism, you know, those are like religions to many of these people, namely the libertarians in this community. How can I talk about that article without addressing that? So, yeah, definitely. I'm sorry. So back to our regularly scheduled (laughs) show here. But, yeah, you know, it's important that you guys go back and you look at this. And you see, you know, what was happening there. And we talked about the history um, in Virginia and how a lot of this, you know, came from Virginia when, you know, they went to court. You know, they had judges deciding who was white, you know, and, and where this came from. And, you know, a lot of this will start to make sense to you because I've learned a lot, you know, researching you know, this topic here. And it's it's interesting because, you know, they have a quote here from Malcolm X, and it says, and until the American Negro lets the white man know that we are really ready and willing to pay the price that is necessary for freedom, our people will always be walking around here, second-class citizens or what you call 20th century slaves. The price of freedom is death. And that is, you know, what Malcolm X said there. And so, you know, again, guys, go and get this book, The Condemnation of Blackness. I don't even know what else to say. The book is just freaking outstanding, you know. And I know we have a lot of people out here that are um, Afro-pessimists, and, you know, maybe we need to do a show on that. You know, maybe it's a couple of people that I think I want to invite on so we can talk about Afro-pessimism. Um, let me write that down because y'all know I don't remember nothing. Well, I do, but I have to write this down. So, yeah, Afro-pessimism. So, yeah, so, guys, all right, so from the book here, you know, because there's a couple of things that, you know, I want to talk about, but... You know, I can't do it justice. You know, I just have to read this part from the book here because it's important that you guys hear it because, you know, this is something that has been happening for decades. And so last week, Raina and I, we talked the pseudoscience, just the really horrible science that's been used to basically say that blacks were subhuman, that we're not fully human, that we're inferior in every way. 
And, you know, I know I said we're going to talk about anti-blackness, and that's what we're doing. Because when you have, you know, people in this country holding up other people of color, like they'll hold up, you know, Asians in particular and Latinos and say, well, these people came to this country and they're doing just fine. What they're doing is basically trying to contrast these other minorities against blackness which is still denigrating and is still anti-blackness. And this is why you see people from these different communities saying no and marching and standing with us because they understand that, you know, mainstream society is using that to keep these people, you know, bickering and fighting each other so that we won't have time to address the real issues. And so... You know, if you go back and in in this book, you know, Condemnation of Blackness, you know, it's talking about Darwinism, and it talks about his book on the origin of species by means of natural selection. So, you know, this was published in 1859. And so, you know, um, right here it says, many scientists followed the path blazed by Morton and Darwin, searching for the holy grail of racial difference in brain size, gray matter, skin color, genitalia, body odor, hair texture, head shape, facial shape, and jaw angle, to name a few. And so last week we were talking about phrenology and craniology, and I posted an article, oh, that was two weeks ago. No, make that three weeks ago. Um, And I was talking about the difference between craniology and phrenology. And, you know, this was just some of the crap that they were coming up with. And so, um, you know, Josiah C. Knott, who was an Alabama physician and a student of uh, Morton's and one of the leading American ethnologists in the 1840s and 50s, you know, basically he was saying that they say that he was at the cutting edge of racial research throughout the 19th century. And much of his expertise came from observing patients in his medical practice, from which he verified polygenesis, the early 19th century religious theory that God had made blacks as a separate and distinct species for humans far beneath whites among his creations, not believed that blacks were closer to primates than to whites, in correspondence with slaveholders and other others interested in his work, the highly respected scientists like to call his research the nigger business or niggerology. Did you get that? It says, in correspondence with slaveholders and others interested in his work, the highly respected scientists like to call his research the nigger business or niggerology. All right. Now, mind you, these are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And this is, you know, what they've been, you know, bringing to the forefront. And you still have a lot of people that believe them now. And Mike Huckabee, who's running for president of the United States, you know, he was the one that was out here saying that Dred Scott was still the law of the land in the United States. And, you know, you can go and look up Dred Scott, but basically what it says is that we are not fully human, that black people are not fully human. 
And you have these people in these positions that believe this. You know, and, and, and I'm just like, I'm absolutely amazed. Absolutely amazed. But, you know, here, this here is, you know, and Morton, his name is Samuel George Morton, for those that didn't know that. Um, and you know, he was a physician in Philadelphia. And, you know, he was a so-called naturalist and expert. And so, you know, he basically, he gathered, you know, about 800 human skulls. And, you know, he published his findings, you know, that the English, the Germans, and the American whites were superior racial groups compared to American blacks, Chinese, and Indians. He based these findings on the volume of shot pellets or pepper seed it took to fill the skulls represented by each racial group. That's science, bitch ass. You know, so I'm like, I'm just looking at this, and I'm like, and, and, and this is what, you know, people have been basing, you know, a lot of their opinions on then and now. You still have some people who believe that when God created, you know, black people, that he did not create us equal to to whites. And it's just interesting, but, you know, with this particular person, you know, shot pellets or pepper seed, to fill a skull, and that determines superiority and inferiority? Come on. You can't sit here and tell me that that's acceptable. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of them, you know, believe that. But, you know, to give Samuel George Morton some credit, he later admitted that he had not accounted for the physical size and gender differences of those, you know, who had once been attached to those particular skulls. So it's it's just really interesting, you know, you have a lot of racist propaganda, you know, in our news then and now, you know, but if you go back and you read some of the articles and some of, you know, the opinions, you know, of the courts back then, you'll be amazed. And, you know, what I found, what struck me the most was a lot of that, you know, you hear it and see it today. It's like a carbon copy. And this is why I say history repeats itself. It just it has a you know a different name, different players, but the game is the same. And so, you know, this is how you know a lot of Euro Europeans or Eurocentric folks they've been able to put the spin on white supremacy. You know, and here it is from the condemnation. Now, mind you, you know, you know I'm going to read this from the book. Get this, but this is at the beginning. This is not even the the meat of the book. You know, I mean, it's just exceptional. And it says here, they extol the Anglo-Saxon origins of democracy and modern political institutions of which white Americans of English and German ancestry were the descendants and the natural-born leaders of the United States. You know, and it says here, every Amer- and this is quoted, and this is Shaler, and it says, every American born to the manner of his kind, fills the world open up to him, and when called on, will be ready for statecraft. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant people. And so, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just bringing, you know, the information to you. Don't don't get upset with me. But this is how many of them were insisting that blacks were inferior. And you still have that going on today with, you know, a lot of these white nationalists and white supremacists 
that we see running around, you know, this is what they believe. You know, what's interesting is in this presidential race, you know, a lot of these groups have backed Donald Trump. And ironically, you know, I did a show talking about Donald Trump and, you know, his prosperity gospel. And you had a lot of those prosperity, you know, preachers, you know, angling to meet with him. As a matter of fact, it was yesterday or the day before. It was the day before yesterday. and Or maybe it was just, I don't know, I don't remember. But Donald Trump, he met with some black preachers in Georgia. You know, they held the, um, the press conference in Norcross, Georgia, which is just a little suburb right outside Atlanta. And, you know, I was sitting there watching it on the news and watching people skin and grin. And, you know, it's like, you know, what I want you guys to understand and to, and to pay attention to is what are they getting out of this? You know, you know, we criticize a lot of these black elites or black political elites, and that's great. We need to continue to criticize them. But you all, you know, some people have not, you know, taken it far enough. You need to understand what they are getting out of this by endorsing certain people. In Illinois, we had a lot of the black preachers up here, you know, Pastor Meeks, Pastor Marshall, Pastor Booker, you know, Pastor Brooks, you know, um, and they endorsed Rauner, who was the Republican and unseated an incumbent Democrat from the governorship and put Rauner in. Now he's cutting all of the, you know, social programs. He's saying that there is not enough money to fund Chicago schools, and there is a lot of corruption here in Chicago. But it's not just Chicago. This is all across the country. You know, but um, now, you know, a lot of people are being hurt by these cuts that Rauner is making. And these black preachers have been silent. You know, they were waiting for political appointments, you know, and I'm just saying, you know, political appointments, political favors, there is always a method to the madness, people. And you, we have to go beyond just calling them, some people want to call them Uncle Tom's, some people want to call them symbols. It's much deeper than that, okay? And so, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, just go back. Go back and read and understand. You know, with this here, this, you know, this book, you know, it will set you free in, in, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, here it's talking about, you know, he says they could not sustain for long their plutocratic control in a democracy based on universal white male suffrage without ideological justification. Some decided that a little socialism was now in order to avoid too much later. This is what you're seeing now. This is what you're seeing now. But right here in this book is talking about 19th century industrial America. And this is why I say it overlaps. It repeats itself. Bernie Sanders, what did it say here? A little socialism now was in order to avoid too much later? Come on now, guys. Now, you know, like I said, we're going to do a show. We're going to talk about, you know, um, black people's roles in the communist and socialist movements in this country. 
and I want to, you know, specifically talk about humanists, free thinkers, and atheists. But, you know, let me send you another dinger that you may not know. The Black Panther Party, a lot of their beliefs on socialism. And I'm going to post that, you know, um, article. I'm going to post something later on today. I have to find it. But, yes, and this is why they went after the, um, the Black Panther Party as hard as they did because they were making strides. They had influence, too much influence. And, and so, guys, man, I'm telling you, you know, I get excited when I start reading this. You know, it's like I don't agree with how we were treated or how we're viewed as, but it's important that you guys pay attention to what's happening and how they're trying to justify this shit. And so, you know, right here, you know, it was talking about, you know, America in the 19th century, you know, industrial America. And it was talking about the scientific discoveries, the technological innovations, and, you know, about, you know, fossil fuels. And basically, you know, it set the United States on course to basically be the world's leading manufacturer and first modern superpower and how we produce overwhelming economic misery, disease, and death. Women, you know, among coal miners, canal diggers, railroad workers, and men, women, and children who populated factories across this country. Inequality, and it says here, inequality in the shape of unprecedented wealth and epidemic poverty called into question the basic principle of a liberal society that all individuals possessed the sacred right to pursue their dreams based on their own abilities and ambitions, while rapacity, conspicuous waste, and inequality were becoming as American as apple pie. And the historian David Levering Lewis's, you know, he wrote that, and he was one of the captains of industry, and said their political allies considered themselves to be walking examples of modern industrial society at its best. But the messy fact that millions demanded a fairer share of money and power created the need among elites to explain and justify their success. They could not sustain for long their plutocratic control in a democracy based on universal white male suffrage without ideological justification. And again, some decided that a little socialism was now in order to avoid too much later. Now, you know, in in this right here, this is a powerful, you know, um, paragraph here because you're seeing this now. And so, you know, look at what's happening with, you know, TPP. Look at what happened um, with NAFTA and how a lot of the manufacturing jobs have left this country and have gone to other places, you know, primarily down to Mexico. You know, I mean, you have, you know, Mexicans, you know, saying that America is too dangerous. They don't want to come over here, you know, which is interesting. Um, Yeah, guys, this is – we're going to – yeah, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more next week because we're not going to get through it. I haven't even gotten through, you know, my outline, not even the first part. We're still in part one of my outline. But I'm just sitting here, and I'm like, this is unreal. This is what we're seeing today, you know, and this is why, you know, it's interesting because I posted an article about how over in France how the workers of Air France, you know, basically bombarded just just – you know, came uninvited. They crashed the meeting 
the air crashed because they were laying off about 3,000 people. And they were so angry, they were ripping their shirts off. See, protesting in Europe is a lot different than protesting in America. And I've made jokes, and I've talked about how the only way that we're going to protest in that manner in America is when the price of a Big Mac is 20 bucks. There's some truth to that. I joke, but there is a lot of truth to that. You know, and, you know, what we're dealing with today, I mean, look at what's happening with these hedge fund managers. You think that was a coincidence? You think that was a mistake? None of these are mistakes. Not one bit of it. And, you know, what's interesting is is that, you know, they try to, this is why I have a problem with pop culture. But that's my problem. But, yeah, so, you know, again, I'm, you know, bringing this to your attention because this is what's happening now. The libertarians, and in particular with the Tea Partiers, okay, they're out here, they want a new social contract. What I am talking about today in and of itself is a social contract about the hierarchy of minorities in this community. I consider ethnic whites minorities. I'm sorry, I just do. Even though they outnumber white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And I'm going to post an article, not an article, um, an NPR piece in which is talking about the, the, uh, the disappearance of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And this is why they are increasingly adding people to that particular Venn diagram of ethnic whites while they're expanding the circle of whites. Okay, and all of this is tied to anti-blackness, not only just in this country but around the world, you know. And so I'm going to read this part here because, like I said, when I read some of this, it absolutely blew my mind. Some of it I knew, but quite a bit of it, no siree. So, you know, I want to share this with you because, yeah, so next week is going to be part four, which is like part two to anti-blackness. So just giving you all a heads up. But let me read this here. And this is from The Condemnation of Blackness. And like I said, this book will blow your mind. Oh, God, good grief. All right, here it is. All right, according to the dictates of Anglo-Saxonism, all lower races were not to be handled in exactly the same way. Although each race had its unique witnesses, colored, quote-unquote, colored races in general were to be treated very differently from European races because the latter were within the pale of civilization. The problem of the proletariat, and the proletariat means working class, of the distribution of wealth and education, the dangers arising from the great social congestions in our cities, the difficulties of uniting one social order out of diverse branches of the Aryan peoples are trials which we share with every important state in the civilized world. Now, mind you, that came from Shaler, and it was talking here about the European immigrants, and I'll read the rest of it. European immigrants were indigenous whites. They were assimilable, but not just culturally and economically, but biologically as well. We can see how English, Irish, French, Germans, and Italians may, after a time of trouble, mingle their blood and their motives in a common race, which may be as strong or even stronger for the blending these diversities. In this formulation, as post-emancipation writers wrestled 
with the relative challenges of incorporating various European races versus Africans into a rapidly growing U.S. economy. Anglo-Saxonism was indistinguishable from white supremacy. Well, how about that? And so, you know, you got to understand this was set up on purpose. And while race is a social construct, it has value because we give it value. But with this particular social construct, it has value because white people have given it value. They created white supremacy. It is up to them to deconstruct it and dismantle it. That is not our job. We did not create it. And, you know, you know, it's just this is fantastic, this book. You know, it talks a lot about the Negro problem. And if you go back and, like I said, you know, um, <laughs> just go back and read. Let me write this down because I need to do some research on this. But it was one part in this book, and it was talking about a Jim Crow nation, which is America. And I need to do some research on that. I'm just sharing it with you guys if you want to go and read it yourself because I'm writing it down. But it talks about the Negro problem. Now, this is something that has been talked about ever since the emancipation of the slaves, actually even before, but, you know, more in depth since the emancipation of the slaves. And even now, you know, they they view black people as a problem. And, you know, when I was reading about different things in this book, and it was talking about the you know, the conditions that black people were placed in and had to live under when they were emancipated, that was done on purpose also. They did not intend for us to live this long. They did not intend for us to survive. And the same thing is happening today. And so, you know, I still didn't get to what I wanted to get to, dang on it. But... um I'm going to get to some of it now because, you know, I think it's important that, you know, we understand and we know where some of this anti-blackness comes from and why you have some of these people that are always pointing at black criminality. And there is a reason for that. And these are statistics and information that, um, you know, they've used for many, many years, you know, and they still use today. You know, and why we say it's unfair, because, you know, even throughout, you know, pointing the finger and highlighting black criminality, what they do, because it's a double standard, and you all have seen this, especially with these shootings and, you know, a lot of the, you know, destruction that we've seen in this country, um, you know, basically, you know, a lot of what white people do, oh, they have mental illness, oh, you know, they're a loner or, you know, we just don't understand, you know, you know, where they're coming from, you know. And so it's just, it's, it's interesting because, you know, even to today, you have these people out here. And what I would tell you guys to do and go look up, um, let's see here. You know, when talking about anti-blackness, so you definitely want to go and look up um, the Monahan, you know, report. It's important that you all read about that and understand it. And it was something specifically here that I wanted you all to look up. And, you know, but, yeah, go back and look up Robin D.G. Kelly and look up ghetto ethnology. 
okay? Um, a lot of this was used then and now to justify how blacks were mistreated and where that, you know, black crime, you know, um, rhetoric came from. It's important that you go back and you understand that because if you don't understand that, none of this will actually make a lot of sense to you. And I'm looking specifically for, you know, um, something here that I highlighted. Uh, And see, that's the one thing that I, you know, can't stand about my Kindle is like it lets us see all the highlights but not enough. So good grief, I hate when I do this. But, you know, you know, I'll just keep on talking until I find it. But, you know, how blackness was defined. And that's why I said earlier about not allowing other people to define you and how you define yourself. And regardless of what was put in front of us, we were able to, you know, survive. And that's a testament to itself because there's a lot of things that have been put in a way then and now and, you know, it touches on the New Deal in this book as well, but I'm not going to really talk about a lot of it because when I do the Black America New Deal or Raw Deal, I'm going to talk a lot about what was happening and how blacks switched from Republican to Democrat because they were misled into believing that the New Deal would work for them, and that's not the case. And they need to understand how the black political elite of that time sold them out. And even when we're talking about eugenics, you know, what happened in the black community, how they were sterilizing women and, you know, a number of other things. The black political elite back then, they knew about all of this. They knew all of this was happening, and they agreed. And and, and like I said, sometimes, you know, when you read some of this and you look at the rhetoric of some of the black elites from this time, it's the same rhetoric as the white supremacists. And you see that even now to this day. And so, you know, grief, um, I hate when I do this. But, yeah, I mean, go back and look up the work on um, Franz Boas, B-O-A-S, Franz Boas. He was a cultural anthropologist. Go back and read, you know, what the, he had to say. I mean, you can go back and read some information on racial Darwinists. You know, it's important that you understand, you know, who they were and what they were trying to believe. And that's why when you hear some people, you know, in particular some of these no-teppers, when they're trying to explain how Darwin was racist and the eugenics, it's like, you know, they put too much hotel stuff in it, but I want you to go go back and read it because it's like I don't agree with the no-teppers either. But, um, you know, they mix up a couple of the theories here. And I just want you to go back and read it because, you know, we've had to deal with these people. And it's just important that you know how to refute their arguments as well. Not only do we have to refute white supremacist arguments, we need to be able to, you know, to refute black supremacist, you know, arguments as well. Because a lot of these no-tuppers, they're nothing but white supremacists and black face. It's the same thing. They want the same thing as the white supremacists, but they just want to see black people doing it. And this is why, you know, when, when I talk about them, you know, I definitely give them arm's length, you know, just like the new Black Panther Party, the new Black Panther Party, arm's length, because something ain't quite right over there. And 
You know, a lot of this is being done on purpose. You know, go and read up COINTELPRO. And see, and what I want you guys to understand that this is happening all around the world. You know, I know I've put up, you know, articles about, you know, blacks in Palestine, you know, even in Ecuador, um, you know, Spain, you know, Germany, England, France. You know, there is a big problem, a race issue happening in France, and a lot of that information is trying to be suppressed. But, see, what happens, and this is something that Americans need to understand, our concept of race is much different than the concept of race from people that are not part of this country. And this is why you have countries like France saying that they don't want to get caught up in a muck and mire of race, of the race discussion, you know, um, based on the Americans' um, version of race or justifications because they see it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a bunch of bullshit. So, you know, again, it's interesting because um, what's happening over in France need to pay attention because not only is it racism, you know, against black, there's been this large anti-Semitism, you know, sentiment over there as well. And so, you know, they've, you know, they've had riots and you have a lot of Jewish people leaving France and going other places because they feel that they're not safe there. And, you know, one of the issues in France is that a lot of the Africans, that have migrated there and some have been there, you know, with generations, you know, they're being discriminated against also. And, I mean, even in this country now, when you see what's happening with, you know, the Tea Partiers and these white supremacists, you know, and that goes back to the little part that I was reading about plutocracy. What's happening is, and if you go back through history and you look at what happened at Rosewood and Tulsa and Wilmington and all across this country, they burned down and killed black people because blacks were prospering and the whites were not. You know, there were times when the white, you know, um, now white indentured servants only had to serve for seven years and then they were given their freedom. But, you know, you had a lot of poor whites that would actually come onto the plantations and fight the slaves because they couldn't find work. And that's what some of we're dealing with now. This is why when you go and you read back some of the early rhetoric of the Tea Partiers, they were talking about jobs for white men. And I'm telling you guys, we are sitting on a fucking powder keg, you know, and some of it has blown up a little bit. And this is why you see these movements of Black Lives Matter and these other grass movements around because it's like that's only a little bit. You know, that was just a light dusting compared to what's getting ready to happen in this country. And I'm giving you all, I'm showing you the warning signs. I'm showing you how this is all falling in place. Don't want you to be surprised. Be fucking prepared. And that's all I really have to say about that for right now. But, you know, it's it's interesting um, because the black elite then, you know, a lot of their discourse like I said, you couldn't differentiate it between, you know, differentiate the, the language between them and the white supremacists, you know, and it's just, it's interesting. But, yeah, black criminality has always been a scapegoat. And so what we're seeing today, you know, it's, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. And being black is expensive and being black is exhausting, you know, and, and it's true. Because, you know, when I went to the Black Lives Matter conference, I did not realize how much T 
tension and frustration and despair and just a number of other different adjectives that I can use to describe, I didn't realize I had all of that pent up inside of me. And when I got there and I started seeing the black-on-black love and everybody was included, that's why I say, you know, I can't breathe. It, It had a new meaning for me that day because you were able to breathe. You were able to exhale. You were able to be around other people who understood how you felt. They understood what you've been through. They understood, you know, what it means. You know, it's like this. You know, waking up every day and being black, that is a resistance in and of itself. Being able to take another breath, that is black resistance in and of itself. And so, you know, guys, you know, I believe that when you go out and you look this information up and you find it and you understand, you know, what's happening, you know, it'll make you feel better. So I found what I was trying to talk about here, and I'm just going to read this part to you because it's just easier. And it says here, African Americans were also left behind in the federal government's new uniform crime reports, a breakthrough achievement in crime reporting developed in the 1930s. And so from here it says the new annual federal crime reports became the most authoritative statistical measure of race and crime in New Deal America, superseding decennial racism census data. I'm sorry. Not only did these reports breathe new life into racial crime statistics, reversing gains made by black crime experts since the 1890s, the authors gradually removed the foreign-born category from the crime tables, and by the early 1940s, blacks stood as the unmitigated signifier of deviation and deviance from the normative category of white. Did you get that? So these other people, the others, so the Italians, the Polish, the Irish, they were removed, the foreign-born category. They took that away. And so then black, that category stood, and it was the unmitigated signifier. This was done on purpose. And so, um, you know, right here it says, the preceding half century of increasing statistical segregation and expanding residential segregation naturalized black inferiority, justified black inequality, intended to mask black counter discourses and resistance, shaping race relations into the second half of the 20th century, although by the 30s the statistical discourse on black criminality in the urban north was far more contested than it had been in the 1890s. It remained largely rooted in segregationist thought and practice and in competing visions of blacks' place in modern urban America. Did you get that? It's being done on purpose. It was designed. And when I tell people when you go and you just look some of this up, racism or anti-blackness is woven throughout the Constitution of this country. You got to go back and read. You got to go back and research. It's important that you understand this. And so, you know, going back and just looking at all of this, and you know what I, the main thing, go and look up uniform crime reports. 
that's an important point. This is what I was looking for when I was looking through um, my Kindle notes. You want to go back and you want to look up uniform crime reports. You need to know what that is, and you need to understand the importance of that and how it shaped this, you know, this mindset of black criminality and why it's so pervasive even now. And this is what a lot of people are basing their opinions on. We need to know how to refute this. I hope you understand where I'm coming from with this because this is important. So, you know, it says the new knowledge of racial criminalization and a new awareness of the limits of black crime statistics had not guaranteed a new deal for blacks. Did you get that? It did not guarantee a new new deal for blacks or a fundamental shift in the scale or intensity of social, economic, or political reform directed toward black communities. That's important, people. So, you know, new Negro anti-racism and crime prevention gained a foothold in a broader ideological debate about the origins of black inequality just when America's inner city landscapes were undergoing dramatic changes. The harvest of white ethnic succession, um, economic mobility, suburban home ownership, union membership in whites-only schools, playgrounds and recreation centers, Sown in the seeds, progressive era reforms, and crime prevention fueled a growing anti-liberal sentiment that northern blacks were still their own worst enemies because immigrants, by dint of hard work, escaped slums in spite of poverty, nativism, and police misconduct. Hot damn, there it is right there. This is exactly what we're dealing with now. And like I said, history is repeating itself because when it's talking about it here, this is from 1940, you know, you know, during that time period, you know, because that's when the New Deal was passed. And I'm going to show you all when I do the New Deal or Raw Deal show how blacks were left out of the New Deal on purpose. But right there, what I just read, that ties in other shows that I've talked about in which I was talking about the redlining and how these suburban enclaves came to be and how it was done on purpose and how blacks were shuffled into the urban areas, the inner cities, and, you know, and how all of that came about, you know, urban planning. If you go to any of these major cities, I mean, if you're in Atlanta and you're driving on the 285, and for those who aren't familiar with it, the 285 is, you know, this highway that goes in a circle. And the city of Atlanta is inside the 285. And the suburbs are on the outside of the 285, right? And when you go, you'll see when you're on the highway, you'll see all of these partitions. And this is not just in Atlanta. It's in Chicago. Those partitions are up. You want to know why? Those partitions are up to hide the poverty. That is why they are there. You need to understand how this is happening and how this was all done on purpose. You know, and, you know, I know some people roll their eyes when I say this, but this is true. The inner cities, urban America, is where they concentrated a lot of black people. They would, in some cases, would not allow you to buy property in some of these white suburbs. You know, the realtors were directed to put us in, you know, the city in certain areas. 
you know, um, you had a couple of banks, you know, most recently um, <laughs> that have, you know, had to make a payout because they were charging higher interest rates to black and Latinos, you know, for, for you know, home loans. And, you know, and even car loans, you know, that came out the other day, too. But this is all done on purpose. And these inner cities, they're nothing but, you know, black and brown reservations. That is what they are. And so it's just interesting. But, you know, again, you'll hear a lot of people now saying that black people are their own worst enemy and that we don't know what's good for us. And so they've been able to trot out that trope on numerous occasions, and this is what they're trotting out even now. Instead of addressing, you know, the wealth inequality and the discrimination and the oppression that we are facing and dealing with in this country, they'd rather deflect and say black-on-black crime. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Raina and I had some issues with an article that was written by, you know, secularist uh, Michael Shermer in which he was claiming that there is no wealth inequality inequality gap. And that's because black people weren't factored into what he was saying. You all better get a clue. You know, these libertarians, they they have a totally different political agenda. You know, and we've been telling you, and I need for you all, you can't say you don't know because we've been talking about it. And so, you know, right here, I'm just going to go ahead because, I mean, this right here, this is powerful. It really is. And so it says, but contrary to popular belief, the gradual quieting statistical discourse on white ethnic criminality was as much the consequence of racial ideology linking whiteness with class oppression as it was the result of new social and economic interventions at the state and federal levels. Liberalism fueled immigrant success even as racial liberalism foundered on the shoals of black criminality. That's important. I'm going to read that again. Liberalism fueled immigrant success even as racial liberalism foundered on the shoals of black criminality. Okay, from the New Deal through the post-World War II period and for decades beyond, the federal government, those seemingly race-neutral, functioned as a commanding instrument of white privilege. It was a period when affirmative action was white. And remember, I did that show talking about affirmative action, and this comes from Ira Katz-Nelson's book, When Affirmative Action Was White. Pick that up, too. Great book. And it says, at the very moment when a wide array of public policies was providing most white Americans with valuable tools to advance their social welfare, ensure their old age, get good jobs, acquire economic security, build assets, and gain middle-class status, most black Americans were left behind or left out. And it's still the same shit today. Guys, I mean, this is it's crazy. It really is. And this is done on purpose. And this is why you have us talking about the policies and the laws and the institutionalized racism, systemic racism. And this is why you have a lot of people, you know, sitting here feeling hopeless and helpless. And it's like, well, what do we do? Because, again, you have to remember with some of these, you know, blacks in power or black elites or political elites, see, they, some of them are 
have a seat at the table. They want a better seat. But then you got some out here who are enterprising, if you will, and they just want a seat at the table. You need to pay attention. And, you know, it happens in these smaller groups as well. So, you know, I'm just sitting here and I'm like, it's important for you guys to go back and understand how this history and the way that it was set up, how it has an impact on us now. You know, you know, emancipation was just a little bit over 150 years ago. And one of the, you know, one of the narratives or one of the tropes that people like to trot out here is all these other immigrants are doing well. Why aren't blacks? Well, I just gave you part of the answer there. You know, the government was in on this. And this is why it's important that, you know, we press them to make some of these changes. And this also goes to show, you know, Bernie Sanders in this, you know, presidential race, that's not a mistake either. So you think about that, you know. But I I definitely wanted to talk about this ghetto ethnology a little bit, you you know, because this goes back into, you know, black pathology and, some of your black elites, political elites, you know, or or those who are striving or wanting to be one, you know, they they profit from you know um, highlighting black pathologies or so-called black pathologies, you know, because it's you know these things are not just relegated to the black community, and it's just interesting. But for some odd reason, we're always the ones being highlighted. And that's why I made it, I thought it was important for you all to understand that, you know, they were, you know, basically using black as the signifier. That's important to understand. Go get this book, y'all. The Condemnation of Blackness is like this. This may have you shouting around your house because it, it, Khalil, Dr. Muhammad, was very meticulous in his research. Phenomenal book. So anyway, right here, <laughs> it says the post, the post Moynihan social scientific and public policy view of black pathology that scholars such as Robin D.G. Kelly criticized as ghetto ethnography began, statistically speaking, in the 1890s, the racial project of making blacks the thing against which normality, whiteness, and functionality have been defined. That's important. That's another important part, making blacks the thing against which normality, whiteness, and functionality have been defined. And this was foundational to the making of the modern urban America. This is how this happened. This is how it happened. So it says here, it was shaped by racial ideology and racism. The statistical ghetto emerged study by study in the progressive era era as the northern black belt formed block by block, inextricably linked at birth, they grew up together. Do you get that? Inextricably linked from birth, from the very beginning, and they grew up together. This is what we're seeing now. And this is why it's hard to get certain people's conversation away from that, and it's hard to to have some of these conversations because people, they're like, well, this is what I've known all my life, yeah, but it's wrong. 
And so, you know, it's just interesting. So, you know, when it talks about crime statistics, you know, they're using northern black crime statistics. And, you know, it talks about the migration trends of the 1890s, 1900s, and 1910s. And it's talking about how all of this is woven together into a cautionary tale about the exceptional threat black people pose to modern society. You know, in Chicago, in Philadelphia, in D.C., you know, this was being told and it was infused with symbolic references to American civilization, to American modernity, and to the fictive promised land of unending opportunity for all who, regardless of class or race or nationality, sought their fortunes. And see, and this is why I think it's important because I've seen people in the secular community, they've, they've written it on my wall when I would talk about, you know, racism, and they would try to say that it's not about race, it's about class. Well, when it comes to white people, you know, in your hierarchical, you know, whiteness chart there, it's about class. When they're comparing it to white people, when, you know, when we are, you know, the model in which they contrast everything to, it is not only about class, it is also about race. And I just read to you there, and you go back and look how it's tied in together, how race and class is tied in together when they contrast themselves against black people. When it's white people versus white people, yes, it's about class. But when it's about white people versus black people, it is about class and race. There's a difference. And this model has been upheld you know, ever since the emancipation of, you know, the blacks. And so it's just, wow, (laughs) you know, for us to be living in a colorblind, post-racial America, you know, it's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing that we're having to go through this again. We're having to explain this again. And, you know, you know, I don't appreciate having to continue to educate white people on these things. This is why I'm like, I have absolutely no interest in that shit with the talking. and No, because if you really wanted to be educated, you will go and read a book. You will pick up something that was, that was written by black people. I recommend this book, The Condemnation of Blackness by Khalil Muhammad, and it's talking about race, crime, and the making of modern urban America. You know, don't come at me with that stupid-ass black-on-black crime bullshit. If you ain't never read nothing or the only thing you know about black people are the Jeffersons and good times, I'm not trying to hear that bullshit. And while we waste time educating you on these issues, we're doing just that wasting time when we could be making other types of progress. But we're too busy standing behind, waiting, and trying to educate you to get you to catch up. And then, you know, a week later, you don't remember shit we said to you. And it's not because you don't know. You don't want to know. And that's why I have nothing to say to you. You don't want to know. You're not going to waste my time. My dedication right now is to move us forward and to bring information like this to light. You know, I'm not your wet nurse. I'm not your mammy, I'm not your nanny, 
I'm not, you know, none of that. Because what's interesting and ironic about all of that is you have white people who some of them learn, but what they do is they turn around and they capitalize off of this. There are white people that earn more money talking about, you know, racism and anti-blackness and whiteness. They make a lot of money, you know, extremely successful careers. While many of our forefathers and foremothers died telling this tale, putting this information out here, and then they pick it up and they profit from it. That was then and now. Tim Wise is making a grip. Rachel Dolezal, oh, she about to be paid. Again, capitalizing off of our fear, capitalizing off of our oppression, capitalizing off of our, you know, mistreatment of, of our experiences. I don't understand it. And there's nothing that anyone can say or do to make me understand this. We have to change the narrative, people. We have to take control of the narrative, and we need to change it. And we need to own it. So, again, um, <laughs> You know, um, just read this last part, and then I think I'm going to, you know, wave my hands and, and shut it down. But right here, it talks about in a moment when most white Americans believed in the declining significance of racism, statistical evidence of excessive rates of black arrest, and the overrepresentation of black prisoners in the urban north was seen by many whites as indisputable indisputable proof of black inferiority. You hear that same rhetoric now. That's your black-on-black crime, people. That's what that is. And you hear that bullshit rhetoric, you know, all the time. And so it's like we got to do better. And, you know, I've talked about how James Baldwin talked about white people and how they're caught up in a history that they don't understand. And then, you know, even when we comment on certain threads, you know, you have some trolls out there, but then you have some honest white people that really want to learn. And, you know, we put enough information out there, go learn on your own. Be an autodidact. That's how a lot of us have learned a lot of this, by reading and researching and talking, you know, but, you know, some people want you to spoon feed them. We don't have time for that. We really don't. And so, yeah, we, you know, you can have them new Negroes. They can come and talk to you because they're speaking your same language. That's why you like them so much. But anyway, this one little part here, and it says, they self-consciously critique black criminality in what they perceive to be race-neutral language. And that's the key, race-neutral language. You hear that shit today. You know, and, they, you know, they, one of the things they say, you know, um, <laughs> you know, the numbers don't lie. You know, that's some of the rhetoric that you'll hear from white people when they start talking about black people and criminality and how we're subhuman and savages and animals. But, you know, right here it says the numbers speak for themselves was one of the frequent refrain, followed by I am not a racist. 
a variant attached to both rhetorical strategies accused black race relations writers of being biased and sentimental towards their own. They were accused of coddling their own criminals and excusing their behavior when black experts dug in when they made forceful counterarguments of epidemic racism in the heyday of separate but equal. Even in the North, they were often charged with playing the race card, and that concept was still in its infancy then. And you hear that now, especially when they're talking about Barack Obama, President Obama. You know, oh, he's anti-white. He's pro-black. He's just doing all of this. You know, he's trying to give all the black people a new Cadillac. You know, he gave all the black people a new cell phone, those Obama phones. And why you see so many of them railing against the Affordable Care Act, you know, so... You know, I'm just trying to put this in context and put this in perspective about how all of this is still relevant to this day. You know, and right here it says one explanation for the staying power of black crime rhetoric is that it had far more proponents than opponents compared to other racial concepts. Beginning in the late 19th century, the statistical rhetoric of the Negro criminal became a proxy for a national discourse on black inferiority. As an objective measure, it also became a tool to shield white Americans from the charge of racism when they used black crime statistics to support discriminatory public policies and social welfare practices. I hope you got that. Evidence throughout the first half of this book here, you know, and it, it talks about the gap in racial crime rhetoric. And, and you know, it, it, it talks about, you know, the white supremacist writers and white progressives. Now, some of the white progressives and the white liberals out here, they are racist too, some of them, you know, and they get when when I talk about, um, you know, these things. And but it's important that, you know, we understand, you know, all of this and understand where it's coming from. So, you know, guys, you know, right here it says, they described a great army of unfortunates juxtaposed against an army of self-destructive and pathological blacks who were their own worst enemies. Race and crime linkages fueled an early anti-liberal resentment that pushed African Americans to the margins of an expanding public and private collaboration for social, civic, and political reform. I hope you got that. Because that's even happening now with the policies and in what's happening in this country. You know, guys, you know, history repeats itself. You know, in certain things, there is no such thing as a coincidence, and you need to understand that. So, you know, I thought it was interesting, you know, when it was talking about these white suburbs and, you know, access to health care, recreation centers, all of these things that you can't find in the inner city. And when you do find them, they're far and few between. So this is why all of this needs to be addressed. So anyway, you know, next week, we're going to do part four. We're going to talk some more about this because, like I said, I'm not even through the first part of my outline. And this book, this book, this is a keeper. This is a classic. So anyway, this is Kim from Black Free Thinkers. 
And we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And, guys, like I said, go back, go back on my wall. That information is there. So, all right, honey, you all have a great weekend or Sunday. That's all that's left. Enjoy it. I thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and I welcome your opinions. Please let me know. Take care. Goodbye.